Okay, so we're going to try to answer Randy's prayer here to bring about a glimpse of that Christmas morning. Second chapter of Luke, a sermon I've titled The Beginning of the End of the Beginning. The End of the Beginning. I don't think I have to remind you too much that humankind did not have a great beginning. Things were going well for a bit. <laughs> and then humans showed the fullness of their humanness. Um, and so what we have going on here in the book of Luke this morning is the beginning of the end of that bad beginning that was made. So I'll be in the second chapter. I'll read verses 1 through 21. And we'll take a look at some things here and the circumstances surrounding the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered, registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of his eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I believe it was Tabidi Anyabwile, commentator, who drew my attention to the fact that this is the only place in the New Testament where Savior, Christ, and Lord are seen together. And not without good reason. Savior, Christ, and Lord. We understand Savior. 
fact, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves or Jehovah saves. We understand what it needs throughout the Old Testament, the cry for a Redeemer, for a Deliverer, and the reasons why a Redeemer and Deliverer are necessary. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the beginning, when because of Adam and Eve's decision to determine for themselves what is good and what is bad, and because they responded to the lies of Satan to become like God, the catastrophe happened. And we can't call the fall anything short of an absolute catastrophe. For humans that were to bear the image of God and represent Him and reign with Him and have dominion and subdue and do all the things that God does in a smaller way, imaging Him, was absolutely lost at that moment. And rather than the garden being the special place where they commune with their God, they were put outside the garden. And it was promised at that point that there would be one. And that nascent form of the gospel where we heard God say he will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the evil one. And then throughout the Israelite history, we see constant need for a redeemer, for a savior, for a deliverer. They were delivered from their slavery of 430 years in Egypt. And after their delivery from Egypt, when many of them fell in the desert because they refused to have relationship with this God who covenanted with them, after having raised up judges after judges after judges to deliver the people from their ongoing rebellion against God, their worship of idols, their forsaking of the covenant, the demonstration of their lack of love for God and for one another. The ultimate happened where again the temple was utterly destroyed. So we have a repeat of what went on in the garden. The garden was the place where man and God met together and dwelled and tabernacled together. And then God had given them a marvelous temple where he would fill it with his glory and where man could, to some extent, have fellowship with God through the high priest. And the glory of God would be known to the people. And so the temple was utterly destroyed because of Israel's ongoing rebellion. And they were taken away into the nations and they were led off into Babylon, the largest of also to the north. But then Jesus raised up, God raised up deliverer as well. And they were able to go back into Jerusalem. In the process God was doing is really just trying to bring these humans back to the same place where he sort of had begun with them, where they would be his image-bearing, glorifying, worshiping people. God consistently and constantly doing the work of making that happen. And so, because of the miserable failure of even so good as a mediator, as a deliverer, as Moses and Joshua and some of the great ones and even David. There had to be one, an appointed one, an anointed one that would finally and ultimately bring about the work and the plan of God to have for himself a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And so Christ or Messiah, which means anointed one, 
In the Old Testament, the prophets would anoint kings and prophets. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil. They were consecrated. They were the set-apart ones for a particular purpose. The kings were anointed to be deliverers, to uphold the law. Again, to be the kind of people that God had in mind. And they all failed miserably. Still, still there was no sign of the serpent crusher that was promised back in Genesis 3. None yet were able to fulfill that role of Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Until along we have here in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Lord, Savior Christ and Lord. Well, Lord is the Old Testament name for God. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And that was the name reserved and given for God. So this is Isaiah's Emmanuel moment. This is God among us in the birth of Jesus. A Savior who is Christ the Lord in the city of David is born. And so we have this same Jesus who was the one that John said came and tabernacled among us. And just yet another image of the meeting place of God. The tabernacle was the tent, which ultimately became the temple. The meeting place of God once again is with us. And once again, we have an echo of Genesis chapter 3 of God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. This time coming again to do something about sin, just as he did the first time. And the nativity of this Savior, Christ and Lord, Nativity meaning process or circumstance of being born. Verses 3 through 7. Particularly 4. Joseph who went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for the end. I'll apologize in advance. I'm probably going to have to dismantle some of your favorite nativity scenes that you have been acculturated to in Christian tradition. Uh, A couple of things are very important. Look at the genealogy here. You know that the Messiah was to come through the lineage of David. And everybody knew that Joseph was of the house of David. I had to wonder if in some mind they would expect everyone, every male that was in the lineage of David when their betrothed was pregnant would wonder if this was finally the one. I wonder if they had that in mind. So Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, which is why Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth, but because Bethlehem was the place of the lineage and house of David, that's where he had to go to be registered in this very massive census. So there's a certain Davidic expectation in that lineage that could have been, I would think, anticipated. And the idea that such a person would not be allowed in a large commercial inn would be a little bit shocking given that. Not to mention the fact that this young maiden, Mary, was pregnant. And you would think to yourselves, what kind of a place? Now, Judea was a place well known. The Middle East is well known for its um, hospitality for its goodness, for its kindness, for its looking out for the widows and the orphans. 
The very idea that a commercial inn would turn away a young pregnant woman like that. Well, the good news is they were not turned away at a commercial inn. I wonder if somebody who has the NIV would mind reading verse 7 out loud for us, good and loud. Anybody with an NIV, New International Version, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, there was no guest room. I'm going to show you a little bit about, first of all, I want to mention that this, the other thing that we tend to think of in the nativity scene is that this all happened in one night. <laughs> Joseph and Jerry come riding into, Joseph and Mary come riding into town on a camel. And there's no room at the inn, and so they have to go to a cave or a stable somewhere, and she quickly gives birth, and that's just not the way that it happened. <clears throat> what I want to show you here is just a typical little home in any village back in that day where you can see the simplicity of the place so you would have the large family room you would quite often have a guest room now the word that's translated in in is used three times in the gospel of Luke it's used uh, twice I'm not going to try to pronounce that word for you and there's one example of it being used differently I'll tell you about that in a moment but, and then you had the family room. And then you had a few steps that were going down. You'd have this sort of stable area. And the stable area wasn't a cut-off room. They did have a door to keep the animals from going out. But so when the animals went down here, they would come around. And it's almost as if, you know, pretend this piano is about four feet high. Just behind that piano, there would be these holes dug in the stone where they would have hay. So during, uh, hay. So during the night, the cows could just sort of stand up to that, stick their neck up over that ledge and be able to eat hay. They brought the animals in at night for a number of reasons. You don't leave them outside. Number, number two, they help bring some warmth, and warmth into the home. Or they would have for the sheep these somewhat raised wooden stables that they would have down in that area. So Joseph very likely came and already had you know plans to, uh, made plans to be able to meet up with a family member that would be able to accommodate them in their home. Unfortunately, the guest room was already occupied, which is why the NIV does a nice job, I think, of rendering that guest room. So we need to dispense a little bit with the idea of this large commercial inn that was just really chock full of people that turned away the pregnant Mary and Joseph from the lineage of David. And I think that's important. Well, let me just point out, too, there are two other places, as I mentioned in Luke, where you see the word inn that is translated from original Greek, and it's two different words. In Luke chapter 10, verse 34, we see the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm not, I'm not telling you this just to sort of you know, cast a pall over your lovely nativity scenes at home. We have one. And I think they're great. They certainly communicate the idea. Uh, <clears throat> in 1034, you recall after the Samaritan came across the man that was beaten and wounded, he bound him up, put some oil on him, and then he brought him it says here in verse 34, He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. That inn is the idea of sort of the commercial inn of that day, where there would be several rooms where you could purchase rent and be able to stay. And then in the other place in Luke, it's always helpful to look in the same book of a, to see how someone is using a word. Over in the 22nd chapter of Luke, and in the 12th verse, when Jesus is having his disciples prepare for the Passover supper, says, <clears throat> tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room 
where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And that's what he's talking about. Sometimes it might be an upper guest room, depending on the, uh, on the home. And I guess, you know, the question to that, uh, the, the purpose, the whole purpose for bringing that up is just to speak to the very common circumstances in which Jesus Christ came into the world. The humble way in which he came as a baby and in the humble circumstances in which he did it. Just sort of the average home with the average person dealing with their average thing going on at any given time. So there's no need to sort of turn the story into this more elaborate thing of getting turned away at this big inn and, and just making it... No, no, it was just a regular village with all kinds of regular things going on and Jesus just coming in a regular way on a, on a regular kind of day. But a most blessed day. And really this would set the stage for the way of life that Jesus always lived. You'll recall in his ministry he said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has not place to lay his head. Scripture says, he, became, he who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might become rich. And so it's important for us to see this. And then in the midst of this, adding to the, um, the character that we see here of that humble thing taking place, look to whom the angels of God and the glory of God appear in verses 8 through 11 of our passage back here in chapter 2. In verses 8 through 11, he says that the, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. But that's what happens all the time in Scripture when angels appear. You'll know when you see an angel because you will be filled with fear. You know, the book of Hebrews says that there have been angels among us that we may minister. I get the sense that if we are ever to encounter an angel... And I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to probably blow another caricature out of your head. Nowhere in Scripture do angels have wings. Wings are given to seraphim and cherubim, which are different types of spiritual beings. But the angels who are God's messengers never bear wings in Scripture. So again, I am sorry to have to be taking apart so much Christian caricature and tradition in your day. It's, it's not all that meaningful. Um, there would be great fear when that happened. You recall Daniel. He could barely stand. And the revelation when we see an angel appear, people fall down. So something about the appearance of a mighty angel will drop you to your knees when you see one. If Scripture continues to be consistent. So they had the same experience. And they were immediately calmed by these angels. Now, this is so interesting because the shepherds are some of the most despised people in the Jewish economy. They are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. They were ceremonially unclean. They didn't participate in any of the ritualistic practices of the Jews. They didn't have time to. They were constantly with the sheep. And it's interesting that the scripture says to them, the angel says to them, for unto you, even so lowly as you, the shepherds, a son is born, given the Emmanuel. A Savior is born, Christ the Lord. Even to those as low as the angels. You know, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount many years later, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you are poor in spirit. You think little of yourself. You are humble. You are a person that knows that he's not esteemed well in the community. You are not the kind of person that enjoys the accolades of your peers 
you don't have a advanced degrees perhaps you don't have a fancy title that goes with your job you're just a working fool like the rest of us even that might have titles we're all working fools you just think little maybe little thought of but more importantly don't think all that much of yourself you have a humility because scripture says God humbles the exalted and exalts the humbles it's a theme throughout scripture And yet, even though it's among the poorest and among the lowest in the socioeconomic ladder, we know also that the Magi, the wise men from the West, came with considerable wealth. And so we know that Jesus, uh, we know that Jesus came, we know that the gospel is for both the rich and for the poor, right? We know that Jesus in his death even, he was crucified with the malefactors, yet he made his grave with the rich, So Jesus is able and willing and ready to associate with every single one of us. And that place of poor in spirit, you know, that goes on beyond just that moment before we're redeemed, right? I think that there are times, I know that there are times when every one of our lives, when there is a certain degree of, and there shouldn't be, guilt should no longer be driving us. Guilt is not something that needs to be. We need to understand our guilt is dealt with. We don't need to walk around feeling guilty, but... We do at times experience guilt. We do experience troubled conscience. We do experience fear. We do experience doubt. We experience um, all kinds of things because we're all so different and we all come from such different backgrounds and we have so much baggage that we carry with us our whole lives. We remain the poor in spirit. And Christ is happy to come alongside people in those moments. You may not always be the person in church that is fully immersed in the sermon and the message your mind might be distracted because you're struggling with this thing or you're struggling with that thing Jesus Christ comes alongside in the gospel to the poor in spirit to the broken hearted to the contrite there's just never a time when Jesus isn't more than pleased to be with us and I really think that requires some meditation because we know that we get advice sometimes if you're in a room and there's tension or you're in a stressful situation, leave the room for half a minute <laughs> for a couple of minutes and then come back. Jesus never leaves the room, family. Jesus never leaves the room. And and genuinely, genuinely likes us. I can imagine the commission of the Father dispatching the angels because this fantastic glory, you know, there was glory in the temple right? When the temple was filled with the glory of God, here the glory is filling up in this little infant and the, and the shepherds are being exposed to this glorious scene. And they no sooner get the words out of their mouth about the fact that Jesus is born and they burst out a whole host of heavenly angels with him singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory. Glory and peace. And these great two verses here. Glory and peace. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. That's what they do. We see that happen in Isaiah as well. You see it going on in the book of Revelation all the time. And that's because there's no sin in them. There's nothing interfering with their accurate sight of God. A genuine accurate sight of God all the time would leave us in a state of constant praise and adoration and love for him and for one another. 
were it not for the cloud and stain of sin and the residue of flesh that remains. So they get that. We're going to get that, and we get moments of that. I see it in your faces. You see it in my... You see it when you have a rapturous sort of engagement with God. When you have that spiritual intercourse that is so rich. Uh, It's when I think it was Justin, him and I were discussing this once. He said, yeah, it's almost like it's not by faith anymore. It's like it's like real, briefly before it's gone. The glory of God. So the angels, as as they are wont to do, angels who Peter says long to look into the things concerning salvation. Because the church is a witness to the powers, both to the evil powers and to the good powers. There's a couple places in the scripture that talk about this. Colossians, and then also Peter mentions this, where they long to look into these things. They're fascinated. They've been waiting for this to happen. The angels know something huge has gone on here. They don't fully understand the implications of it yet. But they know something profound has gone on here. And they know that this is, you know, that the... The universe for so long up to this point with all the failures of the old covenant people and God's people failing to be a light to the Gentiles, failing to be those image-bearing beautiful things. It's like, I don't know if you've ever stayed underwater or held your breath for as long as you possibly can until you feel like you're about to pass out and then suddenly you jump up out of the water and you, <gasps> you take that big... That's what the birth of Jesus was. It was the universe getting a blast of that, you know? Just getting his lungs filled up with hope. And praise was happening. And you've got this incredible worship scene. And Christmas reminds us to contemplate what things do we ascribe glory to? Lesser glories or higher glories to lesser things and lesser glory to the highest things. Glory to God in the highest, the angels say. Glory, exaltation, proclamation, uh, speaking greatly of. uh, There are barely enough words to describe the glory of God. And what does it mean when we say glory to God? It doesn't say glory of God in the highest. It says glory to God. Glory to Him. Glory, glory, glory to Him. What do we give Glory to. And there's lots of things that fall under that as well. Uh, The thing that we end up proclaiming, we may not say glory to my job in the highest. Right? We may not say, you know, glory to my (laughs) new suit in the highest. Glory to my newborn child in the highest. Right? I mean, and there are all these little things that give us little pictures of the of the glory of God, but there are things that we can get our own we can get bogged down in our own image. That's when we give glory to things more than any other time when rather than fostering and nurturing in ourselves and one another the glory of the image of God, we have over the course of time, because we find it works for us, developed an image of ourselves that we want consistently recognized and identified by others. You want to be the person that looks that way, the person that talks that way. It's an easy trap to fall into. We can make so many things that to which we describe the highest glory. And Christmas is a reminder with all the heavenly hosts bursting in and interfering on earth's regular goings-ons and just blasting out with a loud voice, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
I have to imagine there are comets and asteroids that were suddenly set off from the course that they were on because of the reverberation of praise and glory that was happening. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the translations might say among men of goodwill. And some may want to get bogged down in here and see if perhaps there's a kernel of election in here. And I don't want to do that because here it is saying, even to these little shepherds, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased, including you, little shepherd, including you, little Bethlehem Ephrata, as the prophet Micah said, you who are least among the nations. So I think that's the important part of that. And we have a sense of what peace is, but we don't have nearly a sense of what peace is. The Old Testament concept of shalom has a lot more to do with than, all right, just the kids are quiet, I get to sit down on the couch now and enjoy a moment of peace, although it certainly is, there's a, there's a flavor of that in there. But in the ancient Hebrew thought, shalom meant wholeness and completeness. And all is well. Everything, everything is at as it ought to be. That, that's what shalom means. Things are, this is the way it's supposed to be. We see that in Romans 8, there was a desperate return being communicated, a desire for the return to the way things are supposed to be. When there's talk of the creation, <clears throat> let me find this for a minute. Anyone know that uh, reference offhand? All creation groans. Is it Romans 8? Thank you. 842. I was going to say it ain't no 42. You're messing with me. (laughs) For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, that's the hope that we're saved in. The whole creation, the whole creation is longing for that. When man surrendered his dominion, his co-regency with God, when, when man surrendered his assignment to subdue the earth and fill it, the creation fell into disorder and disarray and the sacred space of God was polluted. That is going to be returned. There is going to be a time of peace and wholeness and wellness when everything is what it's supposed to be. In his really cool little book, gentleman Cornelius Plantinga, who wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he has a neat description for what sin is. He calls it the vandalism of shalom. The vandalism of the way things are supposed to be. The graffiti written across Glory to God in the highest. And he says, what will that look like when that peace is returned? And he says, nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, and complementary. Government officials will still take office because somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public high officials. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos 
would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. All around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read those and savor them and call to each other about them. In turn, each human being would reflect and color the light of God's presence out of the inimitable resources of his or her own character and essence. I don't think that's what I see out there today. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We don't need too much of an example of that. We are our, our unbelieving America, and some of believing America might get caught up with it. We have to be careful. Is caught in the throes of not the way it is supposed to be. Jesus said in John fourteen twenty seven, "I leave you my peace. My peace I give to you." Not as the world gives it. So there is a peace that is coming. And so when God is glorified, peace follows. Because when all of creation is responding to its creator the way it's intended to, peace follows. Because everything else flows from love of God. Because God first loved us, we are in the process of becoming lovers of God and lovers of one another. And until that has fully happened, that full peace is not going to come, although it is coming. And we are in the process, we are participating in that process. And so what is our Christmas response? What is our Christmas response? Well, we see some things happening here in the scripture, don't we, in this story. How did these various individuals respond to what they saw? Well, when the angels went away from them, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So, <clears throat> and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and, and, and uh, the baby in, in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to them the same that had been told. So of their own accord, they were not directed by the angels to do this, of their own accord, they went and told what God has done. That in his glory, in his highest glory, he has exposed the birth of Christ the Lord and the Savior. This is the church's mission. <laughs> we look so that we can tell. We behold what is going on in the life of Christ so that we can then go and report it in all the various ways that means. It may mean you know, handing out tracts wherever people do that. It may mean just engaging people at whatever level and speed is appropriate. It may mean bearing testimony in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in public office, in the proceedings of uh, land. There are a lot of ways in which if we behold the glory of God, and we can behold the glory of God, we will find ourselves in a place where we say something about what happened. It's becoming increasingly hard to do that because like... Mary and Joseph and the others, they would be a very receptive audience. Right? They were in the midst of a receptive audience that was awaiting the coming of the Messiah. So you'll have to figure that out. <laughs> and then we have 
this amazing example of Mary. What an amazing human being Mary is. What, what an absolutely amazing, you know, in Protestantism, we're always very careful not to assign to Mary um, doctrinal positions and understandings that don't belong to her, right? We've made it a point to draw clear lines of distinction between whether we ought to be bowing before statues of her or praying to her and that kind of thing, rightly so. But we do need to recall that Mary is the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the age of 14, probably, as you go back and read in chapter 1, you can read the song that she sang after she found out that she was going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit, knowing all that that could possibly entail. Um, and at such a young age to be that mature and that uh, ready to serve God in that capacity. But it says here that when they came and told that, they wondered, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now she get to do that with Jesus in a way that you and I won't. Just as this, uh, you know, parents have different types of, you know, mothers and fathers have different types of relationships with their sons and daughters, but I did not carry life inside of me. Men can't do that. (laughs) But women do it. Women do it. Something goes on there that is, um, if if the Lord grants that, that is special. Um, And and even, you know, for women that haven't born and can't have or won't be having children, you are still a woman. You are that, you are that, you are that, um, Gender, you are that thing that God made male and female in His image. Uh, so you participate in that as well. Uh, but Mary, in, in what an example she gives us in treasuring up and pondering these things in her heart. That is something that we should do after each sermon, if it's worthwhile, or you know, good things that we read, uh, promises that God has for us. This, these were certainly as good as promises, right? Promises that God has for us in Scripture, because it's a good way to it's a good way for us to make sure that we, you know, can resist, you know, the schemes of the devil, all the difficult things of the flesh, all the troubles that rise up. Keep these things treasured and pondered in your heart. Think about the fact that Jesus Christ came as a defenseless human being, and was dependent upon another human being to feed and change, you know. He became a dependent human being that soiled himself. It was completely dependent cognitively and physically on another human being who nursed at the breast of his mother, who was nourished and fed like the rest of us. Okay? To remember that that Jesus knows exactly what we are and what we are like and how, therefore, he can be the best high priest for us in his faithful service to God as a merciful high priest who makes propitiation for the sins of the people who because he suffered would, when he was tempted knows how to help those who are being tempted. That's this Jesus. This is his birth and we begin to develop those skills. And we see that we see that there's this the shepherd's return glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. We need to just glorify and praise God on our own individually, collectively. Glorifying and praising him. And by glorifying just doing those things that bear witness to the reality of God our actions, our love, 
saying that that is fueled by something, you know, uh, something is powering that person. Something is moving that person. Something has motivated that person to be the kind of person that they are. And for all, and for some of us, sometimes that's not real apparent. And for all of us, at times it's more apparent than it is others. But hopefully on our best days. God always knows. <laughs> he always knows that we're his and that we have a desire to follow. Um, and on our best days, others will see and say that that person is, is something is driving that person. So what happens then as we're responding to God, we're responding to what he has revealed in the birth of Jesus, in the cosmic event that that was, the celebration that was, the invitation of even the lowliest to participate in that, for us to be welcomed into the glory of God and into that blessed arrangement what will happen to us as we continue to live out the Christmas uh, nativity narrative is we will become Linus people. We will become Linus people. How many people have seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? How many people have never seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? Oh. Oh, and my heart busts for you. (laughs) So, uh, Charles Schultz was... Um, was a genius. In the Charlie Brown Christmas story, the young kids are putting on a Christmas play and things aren't going well. Charlie Brown, who's kind of like the, the representative loser of, of losers who can't do anything right, he gets heartbroken once again at something he, he just doesn't understand the meaning of Christmas. His sister for Christmas wants money. His friends are surrounded by the commercialism. His dog wins first prize for decorating his house with Christmas. And, and, and Charlie Brown is just at the end of himself. He says, doesn't anybody know what Christmas means? And Linus is a character who always has a blanket with him. It is his security blanket. He does everything with it. If he goes outside and he has a snowball fight, he turns it into a slingshot for snowballs. Uh, when he goes to play the part of a shepherd in the Christmas play, he turns it into shepherd's attire. But in every other episode of Charlie Brown and the Peanuts, and there's lots of them, lots of cartoons and stories, Linus always has his blanket and his sister is always riding him for it. You know what I mean? Telling him he's too old for it and everything else. And he is. Well, so when Charlie Brown says, doesn't anyone know what the true meaning of Christmas is? And Linus steps out onto the stage where they were going to be putting on the play and asked for the spotlight. And he begins with this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the flock keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. He's holding his blanket now. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. He's holding his blanket. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. And Linus puts down his blanket at that scene. For he's never put it down before. Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings. of Great joy that will be for all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior. Tis Christ the Lord. And he goes on to say the things that he was saying. And I thought, isn't that such a neat way for us to think about everything else that we can let go of when we understand exactly what is going on, what it is that we hold on to that defines us too often at times. If we revisit this truth, if we understand what came, what went on in the, in the coming of the Christ child and in the incarnation, right? Not just the birth of a babe, but the incarnation of God 
then we will have that fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be all people moment where the things that we've held on to for so long that are the things that we continue to seek a source of comfort to and which actually do give us some sort of comfort can't be held on to simultaneously to the good news that's being brought and that's being said and so I'll close with a quote by Tim Mackey with respect to this whole peace thing said becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus who reconciled all things in heaven on earth restoring peace through his death and resurrection may the Lord be pleased to refresh in us and renew in us as we deal tomorrow with you know all the other parts of Christmas and everything that somehow this get away for a few moments quietly read through this again or just just in your mind walk about saying under your own breath glory to God in the highest glory to God in the highest just do that and see if it doesn't give a nice little warmer glow to your Christmas day and take away some of the some of the fanaticism that has been imposed upon it and may God be glorified in the process and uh, we'll have our we'll have Lori come up and do our closing hymn for us